Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5vsds9 at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9, your podcast covering the two 90s space station shows. Uh, on today's episode, we're covering uh, Babylon 5 Season 1, Episode 10, Believers, which is probably the worst uh, show of Season 1 of Babylon 5, if not the worst show of the whole series. And we're also covering Invasive Procedures, uh, DS9 Season 2, Episode 4. Um, Invasive Procedures aired on the 17th of October 1993 and Believers aired on the 27th of April 1994. Matt, do you want to walk us through the A-plot of Believers? The A-plot of Believers, we're looking at Sinclair and Dr. Franklin are in a debate over whether to treat a dying young on-teen boy named Sean, spelled S-H-O-N, whose condition could be rectified by a simple surgery, but any cutting or piercing of the body violates the on-teen beliefs. Uh, we're looking at kind of a, a moral dilemma here is our main focus on this, uh, this episode. So let's go ahead and get the, the elephant out of the room, Bob. What would you have done if you were in Sinclair's shoes? Um, I mean, I think the whole episode was really dumb. The moral decision was really dumb. Obviously, you treat the kid. I mean, I just don't, I, I just see no room for argument about that at all. But Bob, it's their, I, religious, I will... it's their religious beliefs, Bob. It's their religious beliefs. I don't care. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the, the one thing I will say though, I, I appreciate that Sinclair's decision here to, to tell, to order Dr. Franklin not to perform the surgery while really stupid, he at least did decide to make that order based on like a political calculation about wanting to maintain Babylon 5's neutrality. And while I, I think that's a, I think that's a stupid grounds to make the decision, and, you know, spoiler, Dr. Franklin defies uh, Sinclair, goes ahead and performs the surgery. And, you know, we never hear of this incident again. So it, it seems to have uh, no negative effect on Babylon 5 going forward. I did at least appreciate that Sinclair's stupid orders to Franklin were from a political motivation to maintain Babylon 5 neutrality. 
and not from some sort of uh, well-intentioned but ridiculous and immoral non-interventionist policy like Star Trek's Prime Directive, which I actually don't really think is a, a defensible position. And usually the way Star Trek episodes frame Prime Directive cases, they're just they, they're using the Prime Directive to justify not acting in order to let something morally reprehensible take place. And I, it's, it just seems to me like a really bad way to do ethics and morality. So I, I did at least appreciate that the stupid decision here was not framed against some like higher ridiculous ideal, but was just a pretty utilitarian calculation about like Babylon 5's political status. What do you think of the stupid decision, Matt? Bob, I mean, you cut into the boy and his soul is going to escape. Okay. We've already talked about this. I mean, this is, we've looked at the soul hunter, going to get the soul if it comes out of his body, if it's pierced. Man, that's a that's a surprisingly uh, deep spiritual and uh, progressive stance for an egg sucking mammaloid, Matt. I'm, I'm honestly <laughs> impressed. Clearly, you've been reading the Holy Scrolls, and it's uh, it's changed you for the better. Unlike me, yeah, they came out of an egg, Bob. They come out of an egg. It's important. Once the egg is cracked, soul escapes. I don't know. I it, it was it was just awkward from the get go, and I I completely agree with what you said, Sinclair. His decision, I didn't necessarily agree with, but I understood why he dis he chose that route because he wanted to keep, uh, you know, Babylon Five is supposed to be this station where different cultures and beliefs can be uh, celebrated, and there's some level of tolerance. But I think in this case, if a child's going to die, but okay, here's my thing though: in the very end of the episode, child dies anyway. By I guess, what did they murder the child? What did, what did they? What did you get from that? Yeah, Rich. Yeah, they they ritually murdered him. So that's okay, right? Is that okay on Babylon Five? Just admit ritually murder your kid? Yeah, for, I, the the First Amendment covers uh, covers ritual murder and also uh, the denial of essential medical services. So, that's uh, <laughs> that, that that that's all in the First Amendment, which is definitely recognized by all the major galactic powers, not just the United States. If your kids are being brats, take them to Babylon Five. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. You can ritually murder them. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you, you just, you know, you just talk about a scroll, you talk about a belief system and uh, Commander Sinclair will uh, respect whatever you do to your child on the Babylon 5 station because, you know, he's got political concerns, Matt. And, uh, you know, frankly, those concerns are more important than the life of a child. It's extremely important. <laughs> now, you have to admit, though, Dr. Franklin was extremely cocky in the way he handled things. Do you agree with that, at least? Uh, sort of, although, and I mean, honestly, I didn't, I didn't bother checking what his, his, uh, the second doctor's name was because I thought like it was a, I thought she was a really poorly written character and I didn't want to, I didn't want to like give too much attention to her, but I, I do think like they wrote Dr. Franklin and the second doctor like so loosely and so carelessly. It's like the position that, cause it's like Franklin starts off the episode talking about like, the need to respect the Antine beliefs. And then, you know, he winds up like wholly disregarding them. And there was something, it was just, it, it was a very unclear evolution of Franklin's position. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I guess at some parts Franklin was cocky, but at other parts he wasn't. And it just, if, even for an episode with such a clear moral dilemma, it was actually handled in a kind of remarkably uh, elliptical way. Yeah, I, in my notes, I, I uh, identified the, the second Doctor character as 
background doctor that now has speaking part. Yeah, I don't think we see her again after this, although I could be wrong. Yeah, she's... she's and I mean, it's not, it, there's nothing wrong with the performance. It's just... It's the just writing. The, the, yeah, there's totally the writing. Totally the writing. Nothing against the actress, you know. She, uh, yeah, she got paid. One other thing That's before right. we go to the B plot, I, I did want to say another thing I actually did appreciate about the episode, which was you do have the two on teen parents, like, you know, in the time before Sinclair has actually made his decision and the on teen parents assume Sinclair is going to decide against their religion. They do sort of go around the station and have um, audiences with the other ambassadors of the four major powers and watching how each of the ambassadors turned down the Antine parents was pretty entertaining, right? So Jakar just flatly says that, you know, their world has nothing of value for the Narn regime. Malari is just looking to get his beak wet, looking to get a bribe. Um, Kosh is, you know, typically gnomic. And then Delenn is really unctuous and sympathetic, but she just refuses to intervene in any religious matter. So watching them get shot down by all four ambassadors was kind of entertaining. Yeah, that's, uh, that was that really, it almost gives you a, a clear understanding of how each, uh, each race or each species was handles situations. I like that it's, it's so, each one is so different, but yet they all reject the request for support. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Which also, you you would think that Sinclair would know that they had visited the four um, ambassadors and that given that none of the major powers give a shit, like, it, he probably is fine. You can probably let this kid receive essential medical treatment. <laughs> Although I guess... I guess in fairness, like you also need to do enough research on the culture to realize that they will ritually murder the kid after he's treated. And so I guess you also need to take the kid into protective custody. So it's really a two-step thing. But, yeah. And then they hand the kid like a travel towel or something. What was that symbolic? Of? <laughs> like uh, Franklin. Oh, was, I thought, I, Franklin wasn't was that the gown he was supposed to wear while they ritually murdered him? Yeah. Hold on. Was it a, was it a, tra was, I thought it was a towel. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't really, I, I it doesn't they really matter. It traveling robes. Traveling robes. Okay. Whatever it was, they, they, they have it. And, you know, Dr. Franklin at the very last second is like reading up on their culture, which I guess he should have done beforehand. Like you yeah, said, yeah, he, instead yeah. he waits to the last second and then goes running down the hall full, full, full force. Like, Oh, wait a minute. Had the traveling robe, traveling robe. Kids going to, they're going to kill him, you know? And then he, they should have done the research ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to woke scold uh, the Babylon 5 staff too much, but yeah, I mean, it. if you are going to intervene against a, a culture's deeply, head spirit, deeply held spiritual beliefs, it probably is incumbent on you to understand them before you intervene against them. I'm not saying you shouldn't intervene against them, but yeah, you, you should have done the reading. Yeah. And I was surprised the parents let uh, the kid hold the, like, the magic goop in his hand or whatever that glows. I figured that would be against their, their religion as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's we we know that they're bad religious people, uh, Matt, because they don't they don't let their kid watch TV. <laughs> yeah, he, could, he had to sit there and stare into space while he uh, suffered. Yeah, Medi meditate on the scriptures or the they, scrolls. They see down. They, they just want to get rid of this kid, and like they they literally like. Came I mean, the kid sucked. I, I yeah. if if he were my kid, I I would be inclined to deny him necessary medical care too, and wrap it up in some elaborate religious uh, belief. All right, so let, let's hit the B plot real quick. Uh, so you, uh, we've got this stir crazy Ivanova talks to Sinclair into letting her like lead a fighter squadron to uh, escort the broke down Starliner Asimov through Raider space, 
which to me ended in a very non uh non climactic battle that I don't even think we actually see. Is it that is that the case? Yeah, I I kind of noticed that too because I I I've got to admit this is my uh, what third or fourth time through this episode. I think third. So I I must confess I wasn't watching it very closely. And uh, I, I was a little surprised, too. I felt a little lost when Ivanova shows back up at the station and was like, wait, did we already see the battle? But honestly, I did not care enough to uh, to rewind uh, the episode and to double check. Yeah, that, that's exactly how I felt. I, I thought I looked down too long, but then I realized that they just, I guess they didn't have the money to afford having her go through and have like this you know, awesome space battle. So you just you see the Raiders coming and there's like a million of them. And then she's like, oh, all right. And then it cuts away, and the next thing you know, she's escorting Asimov back to Babylon 5. Well, it's also a little weird because it's like the moral of the story, you know, seems to be that Franklin should have listened to Sinclair. But yet the moral of the B-plot is that uh, Ivanova, you know, didn't listen to the regs, and that was okay. So, like, it's okay to not listen to the regs to kill some pirates, but you should definitely listen to the regs and let a child die. Like, it's just, a, you know, there's just, there's a weird, uh, weird set of moral messages to this episode. And a part of me surprised Sinclair just didn't go out himself and do it. Like, that's usually how it works with most of, the, most of these things. In well, were you, sa- were you satisfied by Ivanova's explanation to Sinclair early in the episode that when you expect combat, you need a senior officer uh, leading the fighters? It did, yeah, that did resonate with me to some degree. I was like, oh, right, that kind of answers our question, but or the the, the issue we've been having up until this point. But then, uh, then of course, he sends Ivanov out anyway, and then he talks about Garibaldi being the other one who goes out and does the fighting. I, I don't know. Sinclair usually would just jump right in the ship and do it. Yeah, I mean, it still does seem like a kind of, like, I mean, at least it makes sense of the fact that Garibaldi, Ivanova, and Sinclair in season one are often leading fighter squadrons. But it, it still does seem like, a really sort of stupid policy to have like your three most senior officers on the ship regularly engage in uh fighter combat where they could, you know, they could easily die. <laughs> like that just seems like not a good idea for the smooth functioning of the station. Like the station's commander, its executive and its chief of security should probably stay on the station. You know, well, exactly. I mean, who's going to handle traffic control if Ivanova's gone? Uh, how is security going to be handled poorly if Garibaldi's gone? And, you know, Sinclair. Uh, I mean, I, I, I will say at the risk of spoilers, uh, you, you'll get answers about what happens, I think, when all three of those characters leave the station at some point in the show. I'm sure, I'm sure it's, uh, it's a natural progression. So, uh, yeah, a- a- answers are forthcoming. I mean, it may take you like four seasons, but answers are forthcoming. All right. You want to go ahead and pivot to uh, Invasive Procedures, uh, episode four of DS9 season two. And you want to walk us through the A-plot now? Sure. So uh, a rejected trill candidate uh, for joining with the symbiote, Barad, his uh, hiring girlfriend, Marill, and and two Klingon mercenaries, Takar and Yito, invade the station during a plasma storm, uh, which the station itself has been evacuated by everyone except for the senior staff. Their goal and their purpose is to take the Dax symbiote from Jadzia. Let me say, let me start off by saying that at the beginning of this episode, I was so confused because I thought that in the last episode, everyone had returned to the station by the end. And then in this episode, we're back to just having the senior staff. And I know they had some exposition explaining it, but I'm like, how often do they actually evacuate DS9? 
is it just a normal thing now just to leave everyone leave the station when when it when it's necessary i i don't think it is um i think there's really only three evacuation stories of ds9 in the whole show that i remember but maybe there are more i don't but there's the one we saw in the three-part season two premiere that we covered last week there's this one and then there's an evacuation plot during the dominion war yeah i didn't i didn't think there was I don't think there are any more, but yeah, it is kind of funny that you get two evacuation plots like right on the heels of one another. Right, I thought maybe they were just going to continue on with okay, they were waiting for the people to come back to the station. That's why we have a, uh, but no, they they put in this plasma storm thing that we really never comes to fruition. You don't see any damage done to the station or any kind of like shaking of the station from the plasma storm. Any real danger? Well, yeah, that's because the, that's because they locked it down really well. <laughs> They still had to let everyone off. They had plenty of time to lock it down while they were being held captive. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, they were mostly finished locking it down by the time the uh, the rogues arrived. <laughs> okay, what is what is locking it down constitute? What are they? It sounded like they just secured most of the hatches and such so that like it wouldn't um, they wouldn't open except for like with special <laughs> commands, and it sound it seems like they. It specifically seems like it, some of the dialogue that like Odo and O'Brien have early in the episode, like they cleared out like the docking pylons and the outer docking ring. It seemed like since that's the more exposed parts of the station, and it seemed like the idea was everybody's retreating to you know like ops and uh, the infirmary, which is presumably you know in the better shielded part of the station. It feels like these things should already be done though, like just in like as part of like general procedures on the show. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a station that was like an orbit of a planet. Like, presumably, you don't have a lot of plasma storms like in planetary orbits. You know? Oh, well, okay. That, no, okay. That's a. Uh, it's good reasoning. I like that. That makes more sense. Yeah, I like that. I'll, I'll go <laughs> so with that. I, I did want to ask. Uh, did you recognize the actors uh, when you were watching it playing Varad or uh, playing uh, Takar? Yeah, I recognized both. Varad was a uh, Lionel Luther on Smallville which was surprising because uh, the way he acted in the beginning of the episode to compare to how he acts after he receives the symbiote, he acts more like Lionel Luther after he gets the symbiote, which well, I that makes sense. Cool. I guess it, it was really, yeah. Cool. Um, and then Tim Russ, of course, he's been in like so many different roles in star Trek. It's surprising. Not yeah. Surprising. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come to know him and love him as uh, Lieutenant commander Tuvok on Voyager, the second officer. But yeah, here here he plays an angry Klingon named Takar. Well, and I I recognize Tim Russ, although I was primed to because I noticed his names in the credits. Um, I didn't recognize the guy playing Farad. Um, and unlike you, I never watched any Smallville. I think you made me watch the Smallville season finale when it, or series finale when it aired yeah. way back when. <laughs> But uh, I, don't, I don't even know, I don't remember Luther's dad being in that episode. I, maybe he was already dead by that point. Maybe maybe I just don't remember him. But I, I, the guy playing Varad did seem familiar to me. So I, I looked him up and it's his name is John Glover. And he's uh, most memorable to me for voicing the Riddler on Batman the Animated Series in the early 90s. Yeah, I did not know that. That was uh, that's, that's new information to me. And yeah, I guess you could kind of see like he's doing his... He's doing a little bit more of his like neurotic Riddler performance <laughs> before he gets joined with the the symbiote, and then after he gets joined with the symbiote, he switches more over into confident, suave, supervillain father mode. So, but yeah, it's it's a good performance by John Glover. I I enjoyed it. Like it's not a 
it's not an especially deep character, but he he, he handles it well. And uh, the lady playing his girlfriend, Morel, did a pretty good job too. Yeah, and uh, I'm we're, I'm gonna just kind of transition into the B plot for just a moment. You don't just because I want to say that the B plot and the A plot pretty much go hand in hand in this episode. But the whole reason that these uh, characters were let on the station, this uh, orc, uh, he didn't realize that they were coming onto the station to actually harm Jadzia. And he kind of spends the rest of the episode trying to make amends for this. I don't understand why Quirk doesn't get in more trouble than doesn't actually like. There are no real consequences for his actions, no matter what he does. Like in this case, he <laughs> like why is he still on the station afterwards after all this takes place? He let uh, well. I mean, in fairness, he does. Um, in in fairness, he does. You know, they wouldn't stop. Uh, Virad and the others without him. Like, he is instrumental in stopping them. In the scene yeah. where he, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's claiming that his ear is punctured or whatever, his, his, uh, his lobe, and Dr. Bashir comes over and scans him, and he, he, he acts like there's nothing wrong with it, but then Quark kind of in, it implies, like, you know, you need to act like there's something really wrong with me. And he keeps making these noises. Those noises were so bad. My wife walked into the room when he was making those noises, and she's like, "What the hell are you watching? Was that was that thing having sex? What is going on?" Well, I mean, I think that's like they're supposed to be dreadful, right? Like they're supposed yeah, to. But it was so bad. She yeah, she came in, and I was like, "What?" Like, Did she I, think I had you to... were torturing the cats, Matt? Yeah, I had I had thought? I had to explain it to her. I'm like, okay, so anyway, the Ferengi is harmed. That's what's going on. He's hurt. His ears are very sensitive, <laughs> but really he's not hurt because he's trying to uh, play one over on these Klingons that have uh, have taken over. Uh, or, or I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that your wife was so bothered points to the success of Quark Scandal. I don't, I don't see what your problem is. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awful. Like the, the noises, they were just like these pig-like, I don't, guttural, ugh. Anyway, that, so that that's the first time she's ever walked in on, like I'm watching DS9, the first time, so that's been her main exposure to DS9, so. Thank you, Quark, for that. Um, but anyway, th this episode, on a more serious note, like the once again we have a episode that is focused on the Trill and Jadzia, but we don't have much from from Jadzia at all. She spends half the episode asleep. Yeah, and she's like very—I mean, she's very passive and accepting like her fate. Like she just seems to be very zen about the whole thing, right? Like she's not that worried about it. Whatever, they'll surgically remove the they'll surgically remove the the Dax symbiote. Um, it is it is a sort of weird trend where it's like you would think this episode and the first season's episode Dax, which we covered, um, which was you know a big a big trill heavy episode. You would think they would be more about Jadzia, but in practice they tend to be more about Cisco and more about Cisco's perception of his friendship with the Dax symbiote more than they they wind up being about Jadzia. So that was sort of interesting. And as a result of that, we get a, some fun acting from Avery Brooks as Cisco. You know, we get to see him uh, fight uh, Tim Russ as a Klingon. And then once he's been subdued and as a hostage, he spends most of that time manipulating John Glover as Varad and uh, the woman playing Muriel against each other. And I mean, it wasn't especially deft manipulation, but it, it worked well enough and was pretty pretty entertaining to watch, I thought. Avery Brooks acting in, this, in these scenes was great, too. I, I have to commend him for that. I enjoyed his part in playing, the, in playing that manipulative role. 
tried to get them kind of turn on each other and using uh, his former relationship with his, his relationship with Curzon Bax kind of uh, play up on that. It's kind of funny. You could also say we could also say by the end of the show. Then I guess officially, Cisco has been sort of friends, or at least a, you know has at least interacted with four iterations of the Dax symbiote, which is funny. True. What one thing I did notice, and we've talked about this before. Uh, once Varad has the symbiote within him, you get a, you get a, a chance to see just how much control the symbiote actually has over the host. Or did you notice anything different this time around than what you did? Well, in the it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like the symbiote has control over him because it still seems like the impression I got was that Varad is the dominant part of the partnership. It's just that the integration of the symbiote changes him. Like you know, it it makes him more confident. It also it also seems to change his relationship with Mariel, change his relationship with Cisco. So like, it seems like the, the Dax symbiote can change him, but in some ways, but it doesn't seem like it could control him, right? It doesn't seem like it could get in, get inside him and then be like, okay, but now we have to save Jadzia, right? So it, there seem to be like real market limits to what the Dax symbiote could or could not force someone to do, which I think is also a good, you know, sort of good piece of evidence for the debate we were we were thinking about in season one, episode Dax, about how it doesn't seem like it's morally or metaphysically responsible to punish a, a future host for the actions of a past host of the symbiote, because it doesn't seem like this. You know, it seems like the symbiote does change the host, but it doesn't seem like they dominate the host in such a way that it would be appropriate to think of, you know, if Curzon Dax had murdered someone, Jadzia Dax is likely to murder someone too. Does that make sense? That does. So you're, you're basically you're saying that having all that experience and knowledge from the separate host makes the current host more more confident in their ways and kind of alters their personality. It doesn't necessarily control them, but just kind of alters their personality in a way that would make them more... Uh, appear more confident and understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to alter and improve the host, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't seem to like change them. Like I said, there, there's no evidence that the Dax symbiote makes, um, makes Varad um, or Varad a more moral person or makes him like, you know, rethink, you know, his death sentence that he's handed down to Jadzia, which is the sort of thing that Cisco is hoping for, right? Like he's hoping for, it just, it just seems like it's, you know, it changes his perceptions about his relationship with other people and changes his demeanor, but it doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally change Varad's like moral character as it were. Let me say that after this episode, I finally understood why the Jadzia Dax toy the action figure came with a like a tiny trill. I never understood why that was. <laughs> I thought it was so stupid. But now I'm like, okay, we've had two episodes where the trill, or really three episodes if you got emissary, where we've actually seen the trill or had some like understanding of what it looks like and where it may have to be removed or put back in place. So it's like, I, I get well, it now. Really just two, right? We don't you're actually right, see right. the trill yeah. symbiote. In, yeah. Correct in Dax. We don't yeah. So that. just so in the flashback in Emissary and in this one, we actually see this, the slug. I just thought it was the strangest thing to have included with the toy, but now I get it. It's like, oh, you cannot take the trill out of Jadzia and give it to Kira. So there was another moral dilemma that the, the sort of uh, trill symbiote relationship brought up here that I wanted to kind of run by you. And so at the end, we sort of have this standoff where Varad is about to escape. You know, he's Varad Dax now. He has a symbiote. 
and um, Cisco is facing him down and he can stun him. And the implication seems to be that because the joining between Varad and the Dax symbiote is very new, that stunning Varad is actually a danger. Like there, it presents some danger to the symbiote because of the sort of yet unfinished nature of the joining. And so Cisco, you know, makes the choice that he's more concerned about protecting his friend Jadzia than he is about protecting his friend Dax. And so he makes a choice to stun Varad, knowing that, you know, that could kill uh, the Dax symbiote. We don't know, like, what the chances of it um, killing the Dax symbiote are, but we do know that there's, you know, there's a good chance that it could happen. And so he he takes that risk and decides to risk uh, the Dax symbiote um, in order to save Jadzia. And so I was just wondering, did you think Cisco made the right decision in uh, those circumstances? I think Varad was bluffing. Mm, I don't know. I think that kind of like assuming he's not though, because maybe he's. I don't. I don't think he is because we know that the trills are, the trills are you know pretty fragile when they've been freshly joined. But like setting that aside, because I think I think saying he's bluffing makes the moral dilemma too easily. Like assuming he's telling the truth and assuming Cisco knows he's <laughs> telling the truth because he knows something. He knows enough about troll uh, physiognomy. Um, I'm playing. I'm playing. Is I'm what playing Cisco Dax, did. But, I'm playing a Dax episode. I'm trying to make it so simple. Like. Yeah, but it is what is what Cisco did like an acceptable risk. I I had I thought about it for a little while and I was thinking, okay, if if he does end up killing the symbiote, he, then he's also he's also technically killed Dax or Jadzia. Excuse me, killed Jadzia. So I mean, yeah, if he let if he lets yeah. Varad go, Jadzia will certainly die. Correct. But if he stuns Varad and it kills the Dax symbiote. Uh, then Jadzia will also die. Correct. So I, he took a chance. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I guess. I mean, it is kind of hard to answer that in the sense that we don't know, like, is it a one in two chance that the Dax symbiote um, dies if he stuns Varad? Is it a three and four chance? Is it a one in four chance? You know, like a lot depends on the, we don't know that much about the content of the risk, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know that I think it's acceptable to to risk killing um, to risk killing one being to risk killing two beings to save one being. I, I don't know if that's an acceptable moral calculus, um, especially not knowing what the what the chances are of the bad effect of a stun on the Dax symbiote. We need to turn this into like a visual meme of some sort so we can like let people like weigh in on this because it sounds like a trolley problem somehow that I have to be able to see it. Yeah, all right, we'll we'll turn we'll turn it into a, a trolley problem meme. <laughs> yeah, I, re I really think this is one that uh, would fit in that category. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I get why Cisco did it because he wanted to save Jadzia, and this was really his only way of doing it. Because if it had Brad escaped, it, it would have been the end of Jadzia. But then yeah, again, well, he, he has more with he has more in common. Like he has more experience, though technically with with Dax. So yeah. Dax is really his friend in a sense. Yeah, it, so it's like if he, because I mean, granted, if Jadzia dies, that's that's a tragedy. But some part of Jadzia will live on in the Dax symbiote. Whereas if the Dax symbiote dies, not just Jadzia, but his his old friend Curzon and all the other hosts are gone too. True. And I mean, it's definitely like I, I don't think this should be 
the deciding thing for Cisco, but it's definitely not a choice that I think Jetzia would make. I mean, I think the impression we get about how she regards the Trill symbiote from this episode and from the season one episode, Dax, is that she wouldn't take that risk. I, I don't think. Well, that's how she. That's why she spends all the episodes like in coma and asleep. And- yeah, unconscious in uh, the infirmary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, did you want to say anything about the comparison between these two episodes? I mean, it's kind of funny that we get two medical ethics episodes put against each other. I mean, obviously the invasive procedure episode is a much better done and much more interesting one. Yeah, I think it's funny, like, though, that when you look at the actual medical procedures themselves, they're pretty much the same thing. Like, they just want to slice open this kid and, like, take some stuff out. And then with Dax, uh, Bashir literally, like, makes an incision just above her abdomen. And then makes a little pouch, takes the trilla, uh, takes Dax out, <laughs> gets, like, a pair of, uh, it's what they use to cut pipes. I don't know if you noticed that. It's like a pipe. Oh, letter. I didn't notice that. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> cuts the end of the trill out, or in the, yeah, the end of the, uh, symbiote out and takes it over to cut a, cut a slice open brad who did not want to be under the uh under anesthesia or anything did that strike you as strange he wanted to like stay awake so he could be like a backseat driver while like bashir's performing surgery uh, I, don't, I don't think it's uh strange because it's well on the one hand like they play varad's interest in receiving the trail symbiote as an almost like a sexual thing and so that that maybe was a little strange. But on the other hand, I think it's just that old scenario of like, you know, the gangsters holding holding the doctor hostage with a gun, right? But instead and like he's wounded, but he insists on like staying awake while the doctor operates on him because he doesn't want to be in a position of weakness because he can't trust the doctor to, you know, not do something. I, I just took it as that sort of scenario. Although I, I do agree with you that there was a sort of kind of sexual overtone to Varad's excitement upon receiving the trill symbiote. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a medical doctor or anything, but this seemed like the easiest surgery in the world. Like, I'm pretty sure I could have like done this. Like, you do, then you, they take the they take the, the symbiote, and, like slide it into the pouch, and it like slithers in there. <laughs> it's ugh. yeah, and I guess it connects itself. I, I don't think it has to have like a. There, there didn't seem to be anything implying that that Bashir had to connect it. Yeah, and I mean, it it seems pretty similar to the flashback we saw in Emissary of, you know, a dying Curzon um, having the symbiote taken out of him and put into Jetsia. Uh, th- these two episodes together, though, it seemed like one long thing of, like, General Hospital or something. It was odd to watch. Back to, like, back, to back. <laughs> yeah. Was... Well, did you want to weigh in on anything for Thirst Watch? Yeah, I mean, you kind of hinted at some of it already with the uh, with that interesting uh, interesting take on uh, Varad receiving the uh, receiving the symbiote and then getting some like sexual pleasure or gratification out of that. But then also you've got that failed romantic chemistry between uh, Maril and the newly joined Varad Dax. That was kind of interesting to see how that played out. Because you know that she wanted a future with him in the uh, in the gamma quadrant, and that that's not going to happen. He was pretty much going to leave her on the station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they played uh, they played that pretty well. I thought like the sort of the addition of the Dax symbiote just kind of disrupts whatever romantic chemistry uh, Varad and Muriel had had. So I thought that was that was pretty well done. Um, in terms of uh, economy watch. Did you want to play? Did you want to notice anything from Babylon Five? Yeah, uh, Franklin is charging uh, 
the on-team parents for the treatment. <laughs> so, I guess they have insurance, I guess. I don't know how that works. I mean, I, I, I can't I can't say I enjoy it because it just makes the whole thing very morally shady to me. <laughs> like, Which makes it more I real. Mean, it makes it more real. <laughs> Babylon 5 is what space tra- is what, is what space stations are actually going to be like in the future. Mark my words. I mean, I I don't think the human race is going to last long enough to have space stations right now. But um, sure, if we if we if we do if we do get there, yes, this is this is probably what they're going to be like. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's what they have to be like. I just think it, it's just you know <laughs> just general depressing uh, estimations of the future of humanity. But yeah, I don't know. Like, just it's a pretty dark implication that you know. Like oh the kids could the parents can ritually murder the kid in this dystopian future of Babylon Five, but also like if they couldn't afford medical treatment for the kid, um, and it, the medical treatment didn't go against uh, just beliefs, the kid would die anyway. And I'm pretty sure there are other doctors on a on Babylon. 5. Oh, they're not. They're not. And that's uh that's actually covered in later episodes of season oh, okay. one. So Franklin's like the only doctor on Babylon Five, other than, other than well, just, like, I mean, the people that work under. Yeah. Him. Okay. Yeah, more more or less, more or less. You'll 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 see some follow up to that in late season one. Okay. Uh, and then another thing they mention is that he uh, Franklin's willing to import like steak into, at a great expense. I guess if he because he has a he has a bet with the with his uh, underling doctor about the about Sean's treatment. Although I don't think they ever say how the bet the bet resolves. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense because it would be sort of. Uh, it would be sort of uh, inappropriate, you know, after this kid has been ritually murdered to just be like, so about that steak one of us is paying yeah, for. You can just see Franklin sitting in his quarters eating a steak with like tears rolling down his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting on oh, that Oh, man. <laughs> well, I, I really think that uh, in order to deeply disrespect the beliefs of the Auntine, he should do steak and eggs. That, that, <laughs> oh, I think that's really... <laughs> That's really that's really the only thing for it at this that's, point. That's disturbing. Jeez. Right, there's nothing better than uh, eggs fried in steak grease, Matt. You should you should try it if you never have. All right. I, just... <laughs> I did want to flag uh, for Deep State Watch. Um, we do get the sense, uh, maybe a little, that Varad's rejection uh, by the Trill for joining does raise potentially some issues about the transparency and the fairness of the Trill uh, selection process for joining. And I think that's something, I haven't read these comics or novels, but I think that's something later comics and novels uh, of DS9 kind of follow up on, um, kind of teasing out like some of the darker history of uh, the Trill uh, practice of joining and also the ways it's this kind of exclusive practice. So that 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 was a that could maybe fit under the category of deep state, um, and I think even some of that trill stuff comes up a little bit in season three of Star Trek Discovery, although it's not it's not spelled out that explicitly. I want to see an episode where like they go to the trill home world and they cover like the uh, the trill uh, admission scandal or whatever. Like <laughs> there's people buying, <laughs> there's parents buying, <laughs> there's parents buying yeah, their kids yeah. way in, like. <laughs> Yeah, buy, buying their kids. <laughs> yeah, you're faking your uh, faking your extracurriculars, faking uh, like you're paying to get your kid on like the varsity rowing team in right, order to give them a better so shot at joining. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hadn't even thought about it in directly those terms, but the how like they frame the they frame the trill process as being such a meritocratic process 
right of like oh Jadzia has you know three PhDs and whatever 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 and it's kind of funny to think that um you know that that meritocracy may be on the trail homeworld may be as much of a sham as like the meritocracy that like America pretends it is with oh you know like only the best people go to elite colleges nobody ever uh, jukes the stats to get into an elite <laughs> college I guess we've uh, we've pretty much covered both episodes uh I will say the Babylon 5 episode believers was i agree with you bob definitely the worst episode i've watched thus far nice well we're through we're through the worst of it i mean there's still uh you know there's a lot of season one left uh but there's there's still some there's some good stuff to look forward to and then there's still some drags in season one and then once we're on to season two the show is much more consistently good so we're we're through the worst of it uh next time we're coming up on episode 11 survivors uh, for Babylon 5 Season 1, and then we're going to do Episode 5 of Season 2 of DS9, entitled Cardassians. That sounds scary. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it, Matt. Looking forward to it. All right. All right. Um, okay. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to Babylon 5 uh, versus Deep Space 9, the podcast. Uh, this has been uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line, and we will see you next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b 5 vsds9 at gmail.com and we will answer your question on the show uh, we plan to start a patreon with bonus content in the near future so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com